Welcome to the B&E Podcast with Brandon Colby-Cook and Evan Schulte. Exploring the creative process and finding the balance between artistry and industry. Entirely uncut and unscripted. do this. So Evan, take it away, sir. Take it away. All right. Well, uh, after our brief discussion, once more before the beginning, commencing of our podcast on this fine afternoon, uh, we've, uh, we've decided upon a topic uh, that is channeling creativity, channeling creativity. And uh, I had a story to lead in to this with, and uh, it was relevant to me because I had this experience just last night, and uh, I was in, uh, I was in uh, sort of the the other room, and I was I was playing on my guitar, and I was, you know, had some sounds dialed in, some tones, and uh, so I was just playing around with with what was the sound that was coming out at me, and. So I was playing with this one sort of little, little note, this little progression, and I'm I'm catching myself. I'm in my head going like, "Oh, what should I? What should I do now? What should I do now?" And I actually took a bit of a page out of out of how I teach acting and with Meisner work, and I just went, "Well, just repeat, just repeat." So I didn't do anything. I just kept on repeating this one simple sort of two note, two note pattern that I was doing, and then suddenly the next thing kind of came to me. And so I started playing that to that, that to that, that to that. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. And I just kept on doing that until the next thing came. And the next thing came, it was just like they would, these, these sort of next progressions of the, of the music were sort of entering into my awareness and I was just hitting with it. And then there was one point where I actually was, very conscious of what was happening. I was like, whoa, this is super cool. Like what's going on right now? Like, I I don't know what's happening. Like this, this, how these, this influence is kind of coming through me. And as soon as I started thinking about it, I actually started messing up the notes that I was playing and I was losing it. I started to lose it. And I was like, I was like, oh no, 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 no. And I, I actually felt like, like in my mind, like I was calling out, I was just like, I was like, Oh no, don't go, don't go, don't go, don't go. And as I was saying that, and I kind of went back to what I was playing I came back and then it started repeating, to, and again. repeating again. And then it came back to me, but it was like, it was ready. It was like, Oh no, he's, <laughs> he's up in his head now. He's not, he's not focused. He's not paying attention to what he's doing anymore. So we're going to go. <laughs> and I was like, and I was like, no, don't go. And then they did, they came back and, and I actually played it out to the very end. And it was a really awesome jam. Like, and uh, it's great when you have a terrific jam. If you're a musician out there, you know what I'm talking about. When, <laughs> when you do, when you get into like a really great rhythm and you just, you're just really feeling something and it's, and it's really just coming out of you. It's an, a remarkable feeling. You know, what I find interesting is the way you talk about your creativity is like, they're like, he's not paying attention. You talk about it almost like your creative, your creativity is this kind of uh, conscious or something that's out there and it's watching the way you're behaving and it's only kind of give, 
uh, you're only getting access to it when you're paying attention to it and when you're trying to do whatever it was you're doing. You, like that seems to be your relationship to it. It's yeah, interesting. And, well, I mean, it's and it's something that I'm maybe only aware of. I've talked about, and we'll have to provide a link to this. Um, uh, Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic. She's she's referenced a similar sort of experience herself as well where and she's like and all of them are kind of different you know she she believes that creativity actually kind of follows these sort of lines or it can be attracted to certain places and it comes to you but it actually just it flows and if you pass up on something it'll go and it'll find somebody else Hmm. Uh, and she has some really interesting anecdotes about all of that but um yeah it was that that's actually i had an experience of that of it being this thing that was present with me that was kind of almost playing with me. And then when I was not focused, that doesn't mean like I've heard stories of it's like, well, sometimes that sort of inspiration, that creative energy, it, it'll linger. Like you can go off for a little bit and it'll maybe sit and wait for you for a little bit, but it might just <laughs> decide to putter off too. Yeah. The moment that you, start getting a little, in my case, a little bit full of yourself <laughs> and very like mentally aware of, of something that's going on. Um, but yeah, it was a really cool, really cool experience because it wasn't, it wasn't like something, my description of it, my explanation of my experience, that's not because I thought that's some sort of a clever way of putting it. It's like, that's actually what it felt like. Mm-hmm. It, it actually felt like it was this thing that was playing with me and, and was working with me and through me. And then for a few seconds, when I put my focus on myself and what was happening, it decided like it was going to just go and take off yeah. somewhere else. And then it came back to me. Right. That's uh, interesting. It is interesting too. Actually, I do like the idea of, 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 making creativity or relating to it in a way at least where it's not yours that it's something that's kind of out there and I think that why that's good is because if you make it something that you have to come up with it's like you have to be creative in some special way to get it but if it's just out there you could be anybody and you could grab onto it at any moment and I was thinking about this because I was actually doing a coaching on a script um, I, I did a coaching last night and I did a coaching about a week and or so ago with this, this writer. He showed me his first script and it was pretty good. It was, it was a pretty good first draft or no, it's not a first draft. It was like his ninth draft, but it was right. the first good first draft that I had read. And I kind of went through my, you know, timeless storytelling process and I showed him a bunch of stuff and I thought he was going to do a few little notes, but I came back and he took my notes and just ran with it. And his script, like, it just, it just kicked ass. It was like, it just totally worked. And then, um, it was interesting because in reading his script, the way he revised relationships and stuff gave me this realization because as I was writing, I'm I'm rewriting the burning blues right now. And it's actually, it's interesting because, you know, we were like, okay, this is the script. We're all going to go forward with this script, a few little changes. And now the script's going to look so much different. It's like, it's actually surprising me how much different it's going to be now. Right. But I had this realization through, through watching him through his process where I realized that basically Tobin, who's the main character, the main undercover agent, he has this, uh, you know, as you know, I'll just fill everybody in, but he has this undercover person that he works with in, in LA. And then 
um, without giving it away. Anyway, there's some, there's some things, but his relationship to her, I never really thought it out. I never really actually got into it. I thought I did, but, but I realized that if this person, um, actually, it's not just his relationship to her, but it's his wife's relationship to his relationship with her and, and everybody and how he relates to the world because of this person. And, um, I, I, I kind of stumbled upon this idea of his wife kind of being more jealous of this person and, um, whatever, you know, if you see the movie, you see the movie, it doesn't matter, but I'm basically this person dies. And so it basically creates this circle of influence for the rest of his life. You know, it, it affects everything he does. And his wife, I kind of stumbled on this idea where his wife's jealous of this relationship he had with this woman, but there was nothing sexual ever. It was like she was a sister, you know, it was like she yeah. was a family member and she, she can't understand that it's like he lost a family member because she's another woman and she was in his own age range and she's attractive or whatever. She assumes that they must've had something intimate. Right. And his script helped me realize this because he played with the intricacies of the dynamics of the relationships. And I realized that like, yeah, like it's, it's not like, I look at that as like, it's just paying attention, you know, like by my paying attention, I stumbled upon some creativity and was able to grasp onto something that is an idea I never thought of. Not though it was something that came out of me necessarily as much as it was like, had I not helped him work on that script and had we not, done something else creative, I wouldn't have stumbled across it. So it kind of helped me channel the channel of creativity that like I had never even fathomed really before. I mean, it almost now seems so obvious, but you know, up until this point, I was kind of blind to it. So I think it, it, you know, it's interesting thing because if, if I claim it and I say, Oh, is my creativity, I'm such a great writer. I'm such a genius. I came up with this. It, it, it kind of means that I have to be so creative. But if, if it's like, no, I stumbled across this in the world and the world kind of, the universe kind of gave me this, it, it, it takes the pressure off. And then I can kind of go, yeah, if I need to be more creative, just look out in the world, you know, and it's out there. It's not, it's not something that I have to, I don't have to be special anymore. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And it's something that you can, uh, I think that you can attract. I mean, we've talked about what happens when you have that discipline to do what you're doing, to work on your craft, to work on, you know, your discipline itself, the discipline of your discipline. Yeah. (laughs) And how I think that it does start to become attracted to you because it knows that you're there. It knows that you're listening. Uh, And I understand that this, the very concept that we're presenting uh, of channeling creativity might be a little bit I don't know, airy fairy, a little bit <laughs> new agey. Yeah, it might it it might be a little bit woo woo. <laughs> sure, we'll just keep going up with sound words here. No, some people call that what are those woo-woo? onomatopoeias. Yeah, people call woo woo like when when people are like super spiritual and it's like something that's not very tangible. Sometimes they call it woo woo. I've heard. Oh yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I've, I've never verified that. <laughs> I've just heard other people use woo woo. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it might be a little bit woo-woo for some people. Woo-woo. Um, <laughs> That's kind of fun to say, actually. <laughs> That's probably how it started. But yeah, no, um, it's a, it's it's a it's a way to relate to your art. It is, and I mean, and ultimately, it's it's one of those situations where it's like, well, if you find that it helps you, then great. If it doesn't, then whatever. It's like no, no big loss. But 
I don't know, there's, you can be creative about your creativity as well. How does that hurt mm-hmm. in any way whatsoever? Yeah, right. That's a good point. Creative um, about your creativity. I like that. Well, I mean, that's, I, I relay the story. I'll, I'll relay it a little bit again, but there was a, a story about Tom Waits. Uh, when he records an album and he's making songs, like he'll send people out of the studio, like while they're recording a record, because there's a song that that's coming to him. And sometimes if it's not completely coming to him, he'll have a conversation with it. He'll have a conversation to whatever is giving him this idea for this song and saying like, listen, you gotta, you gotta show yourself to me, your whole, like the whole thing of what you are, or you're not going on the record. Right. Like mm-hmm. that's it. And sometimes it'll come and sometimes it won't. And he'll say, all right, you're going to somebody else and he'll move on. Wow. Right. Cool. And it's just, I thought it was such a cool, cool story, uh, about just the creative process for somebody and especially yeah. someone with kind of as much pedigree as Tom Waits does, you know, like it's, he's, uh, one of the quintessential, you know, folk singers, songwriters, of the 20th century mm-hmm. and he's still churning out music as far as I know. Yeah. Um, but to have somebody like that with that kind of insight, that kind of, uh, explanation of, of his experience of, of songwriting, it's really fascinating. It is, it's like, it's this whole thing that's outside of him. He ex- describes finding some songs like, like he's digging out potatoes from the ground. Hmm. Like he'll like it's some, and some of them just like, come right out like like they're just spelled right across like in front of his eyes for him Mm -hmm. so it's uh you don't know where it might come from yeah you know as long as you're you're open to it and i and i feel like so often and i know that i'm guilty of this is that i will be out somewhere you know i'm grabbing a coffee or i'm you know waiting for a bus or i'm on the train or something like that and i get an idea something just kind of enters my mind and then I don't jot it down or I don't do, I kind of dismiss it. You know, sometimes I feel like we dismiss these things as being almost silly and whatever, because it wasn't something that we had premeditated out. Mm-hmm. And we say, it's like, ah, oh, well, it's like, oh yeah, that's kind of cool, but whatever. Like it was like, it's probably not that good. And, and you yeah. pass it up and you pass it up. It's like, why does everything have to be, like we, we feel like we have to be identified with everything so much like, Oh, like this had to have been something that we, we just like figured out with our own sheer will. And we came up and we forced this creativity out of ourselves. Mm-hmm. It's like, I, I don't think that's entirely the case of no. how that works. No, I don't think you, I don't think you, you fired out of yourself. I don't think it's something you dig up inside. It's like, it is out there in the world. I, I experience it a lot like that. I almost think of it like, you know, if we're going to throw around analogies, it's almost like you're out in the wilderness, right? And Oh, I like it already. You like it? <laughs> okay, you're out in the wilderness, you're camping, whatever. And you need to almost like create a spark, you know? So you hit a couple rocks together and they, and they kind of get a spark, you know? But if you're living creatively, if you've got your life kind of set up creatively, something can ignite, you know? Some little spark can kind of ignite this idea, and it's like ideas are kind of like these, I don't know, they're like, 
I almost actually I have an analogy they use, but I, I'm going to stick with this one for a second. But you spark the rock, and if you're willing to jot it down or you're willing to do something with it, you can kind of ignite something, right? If you if you spark that thing somewhere close to something that could ignite, it can turn into something. You know, sometimes I stop myself from writing down ideas because I'm like, man, if I write this down, I'm really going to get into it, and it's it, you know. One thing, I'm going to say two things. One is I do think it's really important to write down ideas when they come. And they are fleeting. There's so many ideas that I feel I've had that have been really great and I never wrote them down. I said I would remember them later and I don't. Um, but sometimes I think you need to be willing to say, you know what, uh, okay, I'm not going to write this down and that's fine. I'm going to move on. I'm going to let this go. But you really need to like acknowledge that you're letting something go that yeah. could be really valuable. And I think when you do write something down, you know, like, I guess it's really a thing of value. How important it is is to you that you that you come up with something really creative. If if you have a high value on being creative and coming up with something really new and exciting, then you'll stop and you'll write it down. If if you don't have a high value of it, you won't. And I think that you know, if you really want to create, I don't think it's something you force. Like, you need to go out in the world and you need to like kind of interact with it a little bit and. Um, you know, it kind of, it kind of comes back at you. I feel like, and and to go back to your analogy, because I really liked it, you know, it's like, it's like really you're, you've set up the, the possibility for something to ignite. Like you can, you can create, you know, like the, like the kindling, you can, you can create, like you can put together sort of the situation for something to happen. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you've got to be, and then you've got to be there and you've got to be open to it and you've got to, well, now I guess I'm moving a little bit away from your analogy, but it's like you can create the place for it to come out. Yeah. Right? Like there's, there's so much that you can do, but then... The actual fire, the spark. The actual spark yeah, is... Yeah, like that's almost like, I mean, you know what, like, I know this is a writer. I can, I can say the be- maybe the maybe the best advice I could give to a writer, if I was going to say is just be willing to sit down in front of a blank page for an hour and not do anything. Because you know what? Like, the thing is, I think that channeling, like we're talking about channeling, I'm a little sniffly today, so. So excuse me. You want a tissue? (laughs) I'm not crying, Evan. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, but uh, if you're willing to sit down in front of a blank page and be okay with it being blank for a little while, um, you, you know, you have the ultimate power as a writer because... I think what happens is there's going to be a point where you're going to be tired of just sitting there and you're going to start looking around and, and you'll start looking and you'll, you'll probably pick something up because I think that's the problem. You know, like when, when I used to have, actually really literally, I mean this years ago when I used to have challenges with writing, when I used to get in my own way, it's usually because I was thinking about myself. And thinking about, am I a good writer? Am I going to write a good scene? Blah, 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 whatever. But now, I don't even know if I think about myself. Actually, to be honest, I don't even remember the last time I sat down as a writer and really thought that much about me, unless I was maybe yeah. journaling. But I sit down and I I think about the world. I think about things I care about. I think about people I care about. I think about stuff. And then all of a sudden, like, that channels crazy ideas. You know, like, things come through me that, like... And, and, it, and it, it, when you're not thinking about yourself, like my relationship, for example, to my dad, I could just sit here and I could think about that and boom, I can come up with something great because there's all this love there. There's all this, you know, these challenges and things that we've had in our life that 
all of a sudden can give me a whole full relationship that I can start writing from. And I don't even need to be writing out of, about a character that's a father and son. I just need a father and son type of relationship or a relationship that was in some way replicates that type of relationship. Boom, done. And then creativity gets channeled through that. You know, this partner in the Burning Blues, for example, um, she's a woman and he's a guy, but all I need to do is I just need to think about my brothers and think about the times that my brothers have gone out of their way for me to help me out, you know, and like, or having a friend stand up for me when someone was bullying me when I was a kid, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, you, you build a relationship with this imaginary person, but you do it from a place of channeling these experiences you had. And it's not, I don't, I don't look at it like, I like this idea of channeling creativity because I don't, I don't like to look at it as like, oh, I'm a better artist or something. I just think it's like, I'm just an open artist, you know, and by being open, I access stuff that maybe people who are closed off don't get access to. So I like this analogy, this idea. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, it takes, it, like you're saying, it takes some of the pressure off of, off of yourself to come up with something. Uh, and it also takes some of the pressure off of like, like, well, maybe it wasn't that great. Yeah. You know, it's like, but whatever, like it wasn't entirely my doing. In yeah. Some ways. <laughs> yeah. You know, you, you know, I think, um, you know, that's okay. Yes. You touched on something that's really great. And I'm going to, I'm going to keep focused on writing. I mean, writing is my favorite medium right now. So I'll probably talk about that a lot, but, um, if you write something bad, it doesn't mean you're a bad writer. You know, I think that's what a lot of new writers don't realize. And sometimes you really experience writers, but you write something bad you wrote something bad. It does not mean you're a bad writer. You know, like, in fact, um, who says it's bad anyway? Like, what's the, what's the gauge? Like, who, yeah. is there some, like, you know, is Siskel and Ebert, like, coming along or whatever, some film critic going, actually, that's not really a good scene. It didn't have an active character. It's like, what you, like, yeah. like, like, no one's doing that except you. So you're the one who's deciding it. Like, you know, The Burning Blue is the first script I wrote, um, got us like over half a million dollars to get a new script written. And then I wrote the new script and I look back at the old script and I think the old script sucks. And I don't even know how it got me through the door, to be honest. <laughs> and then we did another draft and then we've done another draft and we're about to do another draft. And by the time I'm done this next draft, I'm going to look at this last draft and I'm already looking at all these mistakes I made and all these things. And like, you know, and it's crazy to think like, what's the point where it's good enough? You know what I mean? Because my caliber as a writer only gets better. So everything I ever wrote before is kind of not to caliber anymore, you know? So like, you know, good enough and all this other stuff, like am I a good writer, bad writer? It's not even, I just don't even think that factors in. We've talked about this before, but I just think that's such a pointless conversation. Like, all you really need to know as a writer right now is were you able to access some type of creativity or some type of truth? Like even in that first draft that I look at, like the, the draft that got kind of the financing, I look at that and I go, well, it's not, it isn't actually that great in my opinion. And in fact, I, it's a great, it's a great reminder. I have a printed copy of it just because I want to remember where I came from. Yeah. You know what I mean? But there's some really great truthful moments in it. That's the win. You know, now there's more truthful moments and this next draft is going to have more truthful moments. And it's really the truth that keeps making it better. It's not me as an artist necessarily. It's actually my, I think my willingness to channel more stuff into it, right? Like obviously more time working on a script, you're just going to have a better script if you're willing to keep doing it, right? Yeah. 
I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But at the time, it was the best I could do. You know, it was the best I... But, you know, it's... Bottom line, it's better to have a completed script than an incompleted script because an incompleted script wouldn't have gotten me financing. A completed script did. So as good or bad or whatever it is, <laughs> it moved the project yeah, forward. And so I mean, I think it's also another... <laughs> it's one of those cases in which, like, you know, you're your own worst critic. I mean, there are people who are just horrible haters out there on, on stuff, but it's like, like you said, something that for you, at one point, you're like, I can't believe this even got me in the door. Well... Somebody read that draft and they saw something in that and they saw something real. They did. They saw the, the, the real truth, the real sort of gold that was in it. You know, and that's not to say that it's, that it was, it's perfect and that it couldn't be improved, but there was enough there. There is something there that makes it, that makes it valuable, that has a quality to, to us as an audience. Yes. Yeah. Um, I want to uh, also mention this one one thing. This might send us off on a whole other tangent here, but uh, one of my f- the best things that has ever been said to me. It was said to me about acting, but I realize this is something about creativity as a whole. Uh, and it was from uh, my teacher Larry Silverberg, and I remember him telling the class, "He's like, you don't do it; it does you." Hmm. And that's just, that's been, that burned itself, that etched itself into my mind from that, that point onwards, because I, and I've learned how far that goes, how, how deep that actually goes when you get into the creative process. And that's what I try to teach people. That's one of the most important things I try to teach people in, in my classes and my students is just like, you we feel like we have have to control and manipulate everything. You know, like we got to come in and I'm going to do this. And I'm like in, in acting terms, like we have, you know, like we learn things like tactics and, you know, like how am I going to accomplish this? And then they're presenting me with this obstacle. So I'm going to overcome it by doing this. And it's like, okay, you know, there is, there is, I'm not saying there's no value in, some of that work. However, you know, it's taught as it's being, as it being this thing. It's like, okay, well, if you, if you do that and that and that and that and that, and then you put it up and brilliant, you brilliant performance will happen. And what usually ends up happening is you see an actor just standing up there who's kind of dry and predictable and is stuck in their head. And then they're done and they're just like, I don't know. I don't know. I just feel like garbage about what happened. I'm, and it's a situation of a lot of times an actor acting at the other person as opposed to with them because they're not really being responsive to what they're doing. And the best way to get over that is to give up sort of that control of being like, okay, I'm going to, uh, and I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to make this brilliant performance happen. For one, you don't even know what that is. How can you possibly know what a brilliant performance is, and that's not just like ever. That's like with each and every single performance character that you might play. Like you don't know what brilliant is. Mm-hmm. You can you can only know what truthful is after you've actually committed to doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
for me, the way that I started to figure out that you do that is by letting, by letting this thing do you. Like you create the conditions. It's not like I haven't gone and done my work. This has been, and I'm, I'm getting a bit up on my soapbox here. Um, (laughs) but you know, this was, this is one of the things for me about, um, Meisner work that, you know, is so greatly misunderstood. You know, I had so many teachers who, who looked at Meisner work as being, you know, this kind of this lazy person's approach to acting. And it's so far from the truth. It is so ridiculously far from the truth. Like, be, just because, like, you know, people think that it's this thing. It's like, oh, well, you just, you two people, and then, you know, you just basically um, re- respond to each other and bullshit with each other for <laughs> however long. And there's no planning and no preparation involved. Not true at all. There is preparation. There is work that you've done before you come in. But all of that work just fuels you to react in that moment and trust that 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 work that you've done is going to help you actually in that moment discover the truth of what's happening Hmm. as opposed to working the other way around. We're like, okay, this is the truth of what's happening from this moment. And then this moment, this is the truth of what's happening. This is the truth of what's happening. You don't know that Mm -hmm. you don't know that because you have somebody else who's coming at you and they're doing something else. Mm -hmm. And who knows what might happen during the course of, of the performance. You don't know what might happen. Something different might happen. So you don't know what the truth is yet. And that's also one of the important things to learn is that you don't know the truth yet. Even if you've done this, if you've done this play, if you've done this scene dozens of times already, you don't know the truth of it yet until you've actually gone and lived it and done it. Until you're in it. Until you're actually in it. You don't know what the truth of it is yet. Yeah. So you have to discover it moment by moment by moment by moment by moment. Mm-hmm. And the best way to do that is to let this thing do you and to be like, okay, okay. And at the end, this is like one of the things I love too, is at the end of every scene that we would do with each other in, in classes is we would give each other a hug at the end of it. And we'd say, thanks for the ride hmm. because that's how we treated it. It was like, yeah, I'm going on a ride with you. Mm-hmm right now. I don't know what exactly is going to happen, but we're both jumping in this boat and we're floating down this river and this river could get real choppy. It could, it could be blissful. It could be all of those things, you know, it's, but you don't know. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it's interesting. Like uh, what you're pointing out too is, I mean, creative, like channeling creativity, it's done in the moment. It's not like, it's not like a, you, you, you know, you get, you go like, okay, I'm going to write today and this is what I'm going to channel. Like you, you kind of <laughs> have this idea of what yeah. you're going to do. Like, you know, Ted Whittle, like our, one of our teachers. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Really love Ted. Brilliant acting teacher. But his whole thing was, was so close to that. Like what we're talking about was like, you don't know what's going to happen. Like if, if you, you know, you would get there, you would do your scene with him and, and he did a whole bunch of great exercises, but it was like, you, you really had to kind of find out when you got there and did the work. You know, I remember I did this exercise with them and I'll kind of do a little demonstration of it, but we right. were working with physical and vocal impediments and I had a semi kind of physical, but 
but partly vocal impediment. And so my voice of my character sounded like this. So every time I talk to people, this is how I talk. I, I, I'm not really able to articulate what I want to say. Okay? So it got me to talk like that. And I had a physicality with my body and all this. Then we got, he got me to do a scene where I had to ask a girl out like that. And she was trying to be really nice in the way that she was saying no. I'll tell you, man, the emotion that I felt doing this character because I tried on the idea of what if I talk like this? What if everybody ever heard me? How would I ever do this podcast if this is how I talk? Right? How would I ever ask out a girl that I really like if that's how I talk? How could she, you know, and this is my own opinion of myself. Yeah. So then when I talk to someone like that and they're turning me down, you know, it, it brings up something inside of you. The whole feeling of I'm not good enough or I'll never add up started to come up in me, but like in a way that I, like an amplified way I'd never really experienced before. And I was like looking at her, smiling trying to be okay inside I was bawling like like I was trying to hold back tears that were like welling up inside of me because to be strong in that scenario and try and stay there and not just tuck and run and talk to this person and it was like so amazing but how could I ever have predicted that I there's like like you know, you could try and do all the psychology work you want to talk about and you can try and understand yourself as much, but until you're in the moment and you do it, you don't know, right? And so the things that happened in that scene, you know, I don't even really even remember in a way. I, I, I just, all I remember, all I can really recall to you right now today was how I felt. That's about it. Yeah. And I can tell you, I felt more connected to myself and my true vulnerability than I maybe had ever in any acting scene I've ever done before in my life. And it was simply because of an exercise and it was simply because you had to, but the basis of the exercise was you didn't know, but by doing it, you find out. And it's very much like that. So, you know, yeah. Okay. So you're, cha you're channeling it in a way, like you're channeling it in a sense that you're creating a scenario that's outside of you, but your truth is coming out in what you're channeling. Like, I yeah. think that, you know, when we talk about channeling art, people can say, well, you know, like, you know, this, the, the people who maybe like human psychology, you know, they might say, well, no, you create it by this mechanism in your body and your mind actually generates it from this side of your brain and blah, 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 blah. Okay, great. But I don't experience that. I don't experience that my brain did this. I experience life as it's happening and I'm not even aware of it really until it happens. So, you know, I really do think you set up the environment to have creativity occur and certain things need to push you in a certain way so that you're almost like, you know, I think that if people think creativity is comfortable, I think they're, they're, they're misguided creativity is not always comfortable. Sometimes it's really yeah. uncomfortable, but you start to love the uncomfortable. Um, I'm getting on my soapbox right now briefly, but I want to say <laughs> when I, and, and one of the, one of the things that worked in the burning blues, and I, I think this is one of the things that a lot of people have connected with, but they've connected with the main character struggle. And I didn't know what it was like to be an undercover police officer. I have no idea. I mean, other than maybe talking to a few people, but they still don't know. I don't know what it feels like. Um, so, I knew, though, that after the books I read and the people I talked to, that there was this 
sense of loneliness and this sense of not being able to be yourself, which was really hard. And so I was like, well, I got to try that on. I got to figure out what that's like. So I would go to a bar, even on a Friday or Saturday night, somewhere you could sit down, but a bar that was packed with lots of young people, lots of, you know, good looking women and cool guys. And I would sit alone and I would write. And if anyone asked me what I was doing, my one rule was I I could tell them that I'm writing, but I couldn't really tell them why I was there sitting alone because I was an undercover. You know, I kind of had to try it on a little bit. I had to be, I had to kind of not really tell them what I was up to. Right. And I felt this tremendous amount of loneliness and this tremendous amount of being excluded and this tremendous amount of wanting to be involved with everyone, but not being able to be who with them because I couldn't be real. You know, I couldn't be... I couldn't tell them the truth about what I was doing because this is an exercise. I could mm-hmm. have, but I, I wasn't because I wanted the experience. And it helped me really write the character because I started to realize, like, what would it be like to be this guy, be undercover, and then you're around people and you can't tell them what you're doing. You can't tell them that you, you aren't actually this person, that this person yeah. you're doing is an act and that there's really you're this other person. And, and what would that feel like? And everybody who cared about you, this was another thing. I, uh, one of the books I read, I think it was Under and Alone was one of the books I read. But you have this connection with another person who's a criminal, but you're playing a part. And, they, and this criminal, this other person that you're actually trying to incriminate really likes you and they think you're genuine. And they tell you how much they care about you. But you know that you don't, like, you know that you as a real person are trying to put them in jail. But they actually, so you feel the sense of betrayal. Even though you know you're doing a good thing, this is a real person in front of you and you're looking into their eyes. And if they knew what you were really up to, they would feel absolutely betrayed. And it's hard. Like you have to be almost sociopathic not to try that on to some degree. And in Under and Alone, he talks a little bit about that. He talks about how when his uh, grandmother died, who was like one of the closest people in his life, how none of the people at the police department said anything, but it was all the guys who he was under, like he was the criminals, who was undercover, who patted him on the back, said, I'm there for you, man. I got your back and all this stuff. And he said, I felt closer to these people I was supposed to incriminate than the people I was working with who were supposed to be my brothers in blue. Yeah. And it was the criminals I felt closer to. And he said, he said, I, I would, there was times where I would almost forget that I was undercover doing this thing and then they would do something so disgustingly terrible that it would snap me out and I would remember, oh yeah, these guys need to be in jail. They're, they're, they're doing terrible shit. But when you're one-on-one with that person, he said it was like really, really hard not to feel that. And so like these exercises I would do, they gave you that feeling. And, and so what's comfortable about that? What's comfortable about going to a bar on a Friday night, sitting alone in front of everyone else, wanting to talk to other people and not doing it? That's... But that's commitment. I mean, that's what it's about, I think. You know what I mean? Channeling, creating the opportunity where something can be channeled and happen. Yeah, where something comes to you. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, you sort of, you attract it and it, and it does something. I remember Ted actually saying stuff like that as well. You know, it's like, let it, let it do something to you. You know, and he was usually, um, like when I, when I talk about, oh, you don't do it, it does you. I'm speaking on a, on a more broad basis, you know, of the entirety of, of sort of the creative process, but he was talking very specifically, I feel, at least my experience of what he was saying, he was like, oh, well, try doing something like this and see what it does to you. And I thought, and I do remember that because that was such an interesting, again, 
I, I think somebody who's very kind of wise in their in their craft who understands something. Maybe he wouldn't label it necessarily as channeling creativity. Yeah. But yeah, like for in your experience, like you you do these things, and and it's not like it was this it was this intellectual thing that you said I'm going to do this at somebody. I'm going to oh yeah I'm going to uh, I'm going to talk like this. I'm going to do this thing with my voice, and you know it's going to be really great. Yeah. It's going to be really great. I'm going to talk like this. People are going to be amazed. You know, yeah. Academy Awards yeah. just going to start flowing my way because yeah. of this speech impediment. <laughs> you know, it's it's putting this thing on and really experiencing what it's like to put that thing on, and what happens when you know, like, to around you in your world, your environment, the people around you. Uh, I played a, a blind guy one time, and it was like, and I went out like one night. Um, with my girlfriend who wasn't my girlfriend at the time, but <laughs> we went out and, uh, and I, and like for a good chunk of the night, I was trying it out to be like, what's it like to be a blind person? She was just leading me around. Like she held my arm and, and brought me in. We went into a bar and I ordered a drink and I remember the bartender actually sliding my drink right into my hand on the bar. Wow. And it was like, Oh yeah, it was a super cool experience, but it was like there, that's almost like a, that's almost trivial in some ways. It's like, okay, I convinced somebody that I'm, that I'm blind, but it was, what's the, what, how, how does that all make me feel? Mm-hmm. Like, how does this whole situation? I, I went for like a week as well doing another part, um, with like a very, with like a very sort of like posh English accent. I spoke with when I was, um, doing closer and it was, and it was after a while, it was really bizarre. I had to, I had to, I actually felt like I had to stop for a little while just to like speak normally because it was, it was strange. My experience of the world was actually different mm. for speaking with this. Cause it was everywhere I went, you know, a coffee shop or, or a restaurant or, you know, just somebody passing by on the street. Like it didn't, like I was speaking in this way and, and it starts to make you feel a little bit different and it's an, it's, it does something to you Mm -hmm. and it's up to you to sort of allow it to happen, to be open to it and to see, and to see what comes from it. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know if I have anything to build on to that, but I mean, I think that we have all these behaviors, which we do in our normal life, right? And uh, some of our behaviors, you know, we do a lot of behaviors that we already do, like to feel a certain way. You know, the way that people sit, the way they talk, the way they use their hands to explain what they're trying to talk about, um, how willing they are to go and talk to somebody and introduce themselves to someone they don't know, how scared they are of it, um, the way they behave around that type of behavior, you know, like around doing that type of situation how they talk with their friends, how they talk with their parents, how they talk with their siblings, how they talk to younger people, how they deal with animals. All these behaviors are based on all these relationships and this kind of idea of who we think we are and whatever. And, you know, I was actually realizing as you were talking um, how, like, writing is so interesting in the sense that, you know, you could write the same dialogue and just create a different character. And the dialogue can be totally fine a lot of the time. And if you color it with a different character, a different person, 
um, it can have a totally different meaning. You know, um, I remember this one exercise we did in, in Ted's class. It was before you were involved. It was called a character class. And we all got the same piece of text. It was kind of this random text that none of us had ever seen before. And our job was to go away that week and to create a character and a backstory and relationships. And to just basically like delve out who, who this person was. And we weren't told what to do or how to do it. Just we had to go off and do it on our own. And it was interesting because I remember my little monologue that I got was uh, I came up with this Irish gangster. I don't know why, <laughs> but the way it was talked, the way he was talking or the way this dialogue went, can I, I, and I thought, you know, and I, I remember I created like he had a best friend and he had this real problem with his dad and his dad had like a disability and I just started like letting this stuff rift. And it was really interesting because when we got to actually doing the scene, you know, obviously other people were doing the scene and it was like something out of some other play. It was like we were saying the same thing, but the whole context and the way it was said and what we were doing and the way we were behaving was entirely different. It didn't, the words really didn't matter. Yeah. And so, you know, um, it was really interesting because you know, we had to do characters. We had these, we, I think we had maybe a few, we had to come up with a physical impediment and a vocal impediment. And we had to come up with a backstory and we had to come up with, um, some relationships and we had to come up with an objective. I and mean, basically that was what we had yeah. to do, but we weren't told how to do it or whatever. We were just kind of, we had to go and do it. So obviously everyone came up with different vocal impediments, different physical impediments, different objectives, different relationships, different backstories. And then, didn't matter what we said. It was all, you know, and so I think that um, when you're acting or when you're writing, you're, you're, what you're really trying to do is the words don't really matter. What you're trying to do is you're trying to figure out what's the, you know, like you want to channel into this, like, and I think you got to trust. I mean, I think the exercise worked the best for us because we did this a few times, but I just remember this one specifically, but it worked the best when you trusted the process. When you trusted that your work and your thoughts and your ideas behind it, what you felt you needed to fill in, were absolutely the right answer. And why? Because they're your truth. There, no one could give you that answer. And in fact, if someone did and you and you took it, it would probably not work because yeah. what you needed was to pick something that was like. Like, why did I pick the physical impediment that I picked? I actually picked something like he had, uh, my physical impediment was like he had some kind of spleen cancer or something, right. some, some type of problem, some type of ulcer or something, right? right? But I came up with this idea. Like, it wasn't written, it wasn't directed to me, it wasn't told. But I just thought, what would be, what would be something that would hold this guy back who's supposed to be this physical person in the world? He's, he's basically like a tough guy, like a, a bouncer type of dude, right? Right. And I was like, what would be a hard thing to do where you're trying to physically intimidate someone, but you're always in pain? You know what I mean? And, and like, I'll tell you something. If you're in pain and you, and you have a weak spot and you, you're not going to want to let people know that. And also, you know, I don't know if anyone's ever been hurt, but I played sports before. If you're physically hurt and you're playing sports again and you know you're out on, say, like hockey, you're out on the ice and you're thinking about taking a hit, sometimes you don't want to take that hit because... And you ease up a little bit. Ease up a little because you know it's going to hurt a little more. But when you're perfectly healthy, you don't even think about it. And so this, like these impediment things, you would work with were like they they just change your game. Yeah. Like 
a whole new level. Anyway, yeah, they do yeah. everything, and it's um, and they can, and the ideas come out of some place. I mean, that's I mean that's part of the the wondrous thing to me about acting as far as a creative as a creative discipline and a creative craft and, and art is that there's so many different levels in which like you can engage with, with that creativity and channeling that thing. You can do it beforehand, like within the actual sort of the work that you're doing, the preparation that you're doing before what's actually supposed to take place. Because I feel like they are, they're two separate things. They're not often talked about in that way. Like the what? work that you do before, oh. you know, in acting like this sort of the, when you're looking at a script and you're starting to figure stuff out about what's going on within all of that. And then your performance, you know, they're, they're two almost, they're like two entirely different things. Really. I mean, one's up on its feet and the other one is just, is kind of all theoretical in a large sense, but there is an opportunity in both of those stages. Uh, no pun intended, actually. Uh, (laughs) But there's there's still opportunities even in that preparation stage to to really work with creativity and to really channel something and to and to get some ideas because I know I've been in that position before too where I'm I'm working on something I'm working something out with a character one of the things I think is a terrific tool which isn't actually taught a lot um, in acting but is um, is just like stream of like stream of consciousness thought on on your character on their background on the things that are around them their the other characters their the objects and places around them you just do like a stream of consciousness about those things in relation to your character and you see what what happens and what you come up with and sometimes some pretty wild stuff you're like whoa i don't know where where i got that i didn't even think that I, that hadn't even entered my consciousness, but then you just kind of spill this thing out there and it's staring at you right in the face. Mm-hmm. You know, you just write this whole thing out and, and it takes you by surprise. And sometimes those are like some of the best stuff that have fueled some of my performances. Um, stuff, sometimes it's just, it would come out as imagery, you know, like it's not even an explanation. It's like, oh, well, when they were this, then, you know, they're, their father told them this at this time in their life and blah, blah, blah. It's like, not that there's anything wrong with that, but sometimes it would come out in ways like I would be writing something like they're, they're like a crow. They're like this black <laughs> crow. <laughs> this gen- you yeah. know, it'd be, and it would, and sometimes it wouldn't even be beyond that. It'd be like, they're like this black crow. And you know, <laughs> then you go off on this whole other thing. And sometimes it's those weird things that you're like, I don't entirely understand that's that thing's meaning and how that's exactly going to work itself into the performance. But I don't necessarily have to know that, mm-hmm. you know, cause it came from me, it came through me somehow. So if I should just trust that it's going to come through me somehow over here as well. You know, who was a, a really great teacher that we studied with? I'm, I'm, I'm kind of going on this topic that you're going on, but Nathaniel DeVoe was actually, just really great in a lot of ways. He taught me some powerful lessons, but I remember this one time. I don't know if you remember this class. You were in it, I'm pretty sure, but went to the park. Remember? Oh, yes, 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 yes. Yeah, I was playing a homeless person from this play. More yeah. squirrel. More yeah, squirrel. More squirrel, he kept saying. More squirrel. So he got me to do the animal, basically squirrel. Yeah. And I, and it's just kind of be squirrely, you know, like look over your shoulder, you know, all the time. You know, you're, you're, you're kind of antsy. You're, you know, you're scared on edge, whatever. 
And I remember he said, before we started the scene, he said, I want you to go walk around the park and until you're ready, then you can come and start the scene. And then you'll sit down and you'll start the scene. The scene took place on a park bench, so it's pretty easy for me. But um, I walked around and I had these peanuts in this ratty green jacket. What was that, Brandon? <laughs> peanuts. Peanuts. <laughs> peanuts. Peanuts. Let's be clear. There's a, a peanut, sir. <laughs> a peanut. <laughs> Just you so say, are clear. If you say peanuts, I'm I'm like, geez, Brent, if you've been saying peanuts that way well, your whole life. It was in my jacket. It's got a. It's Did got, it sound? Does it sound? Yeah. It sounds a little. It sounds. I was carrying a bag of dicks there. in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, peanuts. Um. <laughs> continue, continue. Yeah, right. we can't get hung up on this one. No. On this one thing. We could, but we, we won't. We could, but we won't. All so, right. walking around this this park, and uh, I remember there was an older man, an older gentleman, and I uh, I was standing near this garbage can, and he was walking by, and I was kind of doing my thing, and I and I asked him for some change. And I mean, at the time, I don't know, what was it, 20, must have been 21? 20? I don't know. I was pretty young, right? I was like, yeah. this is a kid, right? And, yeah. uh but I looked pretty rough, I remember, and uh, and I said, uh, "Hey, you know, um, can I get some change or whatever?" And he, he he and he and he gave me some, and then I said, "Hey, would you like some peanuts or whatever?" Right, and I offered him some, and he looked at me with this just such like empathy and just such like he looked at me. And he said, "He's like, take care of yourself, son," you know. And I, and I, he's just like, I think he looked at me and he's just like, how is this, like I, the way I received it, I never, I never really had that interaction before, yeah. where he was just like, I can't believe, like it just, I mean, it's projective. I don't know what he was thinking, but it seemed like he was thinking like, man, how'd this kid end up yeah. on the street? You know, how'd this kid end up homeless and struggling this way? And he just genuinely, the way he looked at me and the way he said it, just, I really felt like he cared. Yeah. And I remember walking away from that and then walking into the scene and thinking like, wow, like, you know, like it's <laughs> like, that was one great thing about that whole exercise Daniel did where you, he set up an environment where you channeled creativity in a way that you just never get that opportunity. You know, it's like kind of method acting kind of, yeah. you know, but, but like we just like, you don't know what it's like really until you're there. Like I can tell the story and people can go, Oh yeah. Okay. I can get that. But they didn't look into his eyes and they didn't have the connection. You know, like when you, when you're hearing it, I, I just don't know how to, I don't, I don't think it's something you explain. I mean, I can relay the story, but until you experience it, you don't really know what it's like. Let me bridge onto one other thing. Yeah. yeah. I did a, I did a scene from the born on the 4th of July which was a Tom Cruise movie where he was in a wheelchair, Vietnam vet. Yeah. I mean, I was a crazy young actor. I would just do whatever. I was totally committed, like method and all that, right? So I try stuff out. I wanted to try it out. I want to see what it's like. But I said, okay, well, I'm doing the scene for a month. I'm going to roll around in a wheelchair for a month, and I'm going to try it. And uh, I, I I did. I just rolled around all the time. And, I, and I, I'll tell you, sidewalks are a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Because you know what? Yeah. <laughs> a lot of the time, there's sidewalks where, like over in Kitsilano, Vancouver here, there's sidewalks where they don't have a ramp on them. So, like, you know, and, and, and just so I can give some basis, if someone hasn't seen the movie, he didn't have any feeling from his, basically from his uh, middle of his spine down. So no, no legs, couldn't move his legs, yeah. whatever. So 
figuring out how to deal with your wheelchair, you know, you kind of had to cross the road or do something. And then if you were on a hill, that was another real bitch. You know what I mean? It was another real pain in the ass. Like, like, how do I do this? I remember one time I was rolling down this hill and the, and the wheels on this particular wheelchair didn't have enough traction and the wheelchair started sliding down a hill. I know. And I was like, I was like, Oh my God. Like, like, you know, there's this part of me in the back of my mind that knew I could stick my foot Jeez. out and stop myself. Yeah. But I was like sliding down this hill and I was going to come towards an intersection. I actually, to be honest, I think I did stop myself. I, you know, but I was thinking, I remember like, man, if I couldn't, I would have slid like into traffic. You know what I mean? <laughs> if I was, or if I was really, if you were really committed, Brandon, oh, I was really committed. If you I were really got committed, your, your life would have ended that day. <laughs> <laughs> You would have been a way better actor if not fully committed. Not, you not fully worth it, committed. folks. Not yeah. worth it, folks, uh, to do that. But, okay, so this is my point. I just wanted to give some examples. Opening yeah. doors, obviously, challenge, whatever. But, um, so the script that I was working on, I referred to this earlier in the podcast, this, with this particular person, it, one of his characters, um, actually, he gets shot uh, while he's traveling through Mexico. I don't know if people know too much about Mexico right now, but... Um, it's a very poignant part in his script, but there's a lot of kidnapping. There's a lot of criminal activity going on, a lot of drug cartel stuff. Anyway, his character gets caught in the middle of something, and he ends up getting shot. And he basically, he doesn't get paralyzed, but he, he's in a wheelchair for a little while. And there's this bog in his script. There's this point where it gets real boring. And um, I was talking with him about it, and I said, you know, when he gets into the wheelchair, I love that part, but all of a sudden, like, he gets super passive, everyone's taking care of him, and whatever, and he said, yeah, you know, I think that the wheelchair is, like, a disadvantage, maybe I should give it, I said, no, I love that, but I said, I think that you need to make him more active, more of a champion, when he's, like, let him take care of stuff on his own in the wheelchair, and he said, well, he can't, you know, blah, blah, blah. and it's like, I, and I told him the story, he said, listen, I rolled around in a wheelchair for a month, and my one thing was I wanted to, I, like, one of the things about that character in that particular story is that he wants to kind of do things. Like, he wants to be a man. He wants to take care of stuff himself. Yeah. But so one of my rules was I had to try and take care of stuff myself and not get help from everybody. Um, and I realized that there's so much I take for granted being able to walk around and not be in a wheelchair. You know what I mean? Like, there's so much I take for granted. But, like, he wrote the character like a victim. And, I, and, and had I not had that experience, I might not have been able to help him in that part of the script. But I said, like, he, he needs to not look at himself like a victim. He needs to be a champion, you know, in this moment. I mean, one of our best friends, Marco, you know, like yeah. he's in a chair and that guy's stronger than most people that I know. You know what I mean? Stronger than me. Yeah. And, and the thing is, I look, I look at him and he's an inspiration because it doesn't, it, it doesn't matter your physical situation. But I think we have a, sometimes until you... Like, we have ideas of ourselves that we're somehow less than if we don't have something. But it's like, no, like, I, and I pointed out to this particular writer, I said, your character actually has the chance to be stronger right now. Like, that's what the one thing I realized about rolling around in this chair was that I was stronger by the end of that month or during that month than I had probably been in most of my life. Because I didn't get to take things for granted as much. You know what I mean? I had to realize, like, there's more work to get to do something, to achieve a goal, you know. Um, and in a way, because there's more work, because there's more to it, and if you have a goal, if you have an uh, objective, you actually find more within you, you know. And I, I think that was, that was a, what I'm, my point is, is that these are scenarios where they're setting up the opportunity to channel creativity. 
How do you know until you're, like, it's easy to roll around in a chair for a few hours, but try doing it for a few days or a few weeks or a month, you know, then you'll really experience it. Like, I don't, you know, and that's how long it took me, you know, and I think maybe if I was the fully committed actor, I would have done it for a year. (laughs) But you know what I'm saying, right? Like, like at a certain point, you got to say, okay, I've, I've done enough of this exercise, but yeah, you got to create the channel. You got to create the... Yeah, for that, I mean, it's about touching on the experience. I, I had this great interview that I've referenced to people all the time with Daniel Day-Lewis, and and he was talking a little bit about, you know, method acting, quote-unquote, you know, and he's he's very sort of resistant to talking about the whole thing, but, you know, he's saying, like, a lot of people's concept of method acting is like, oh, well, you're playing a prisoner, so you know, you got to go and like lock yourself up in a prison and eat cold porridge for the next two weeks. And he says, it's like, it's kind of a mundane detail in a way, you know, and it's like, it's like, it's, and it's kind of the most obvious thing, like, which makes it kind of not in some ways, not quite as important, but it's really about looking at the experiences and looking how you can touch upon that experience, just like to some, in some small way being able to touch upon it, being able to understand it yeah. in some, in some way. And it's about the emotional experience of it, not the literal physical thing of it. Like rolling around in a chair. I mean, you, you start to build the strength and the muscle and the whatever, like in your arms and things like that, that actual part, it's how I felt in the chair. Can I share one more story? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. There was a time where I went to a cafe. Okay. And I, and, and, I was in this air, like area, no one knew who I was. So when I rolled around and did my thing, like everyone just assumed that's really who I was. Like the, people didn't treat me like I was some actor in a chair. They treated me like a guy that was actually in a chair. And I remember I was at this cafe. If anyone's in Kits Lionel, they'll know what I'm talking about. It's Calhoun's. And uh, the, it's kind of communal tables, you know. Everyone just kind of rolls up, does their homework and stuff. It's a very like university kind of cafe. Yeah. And I went and I rolled up, got my drink or whatever, and there was no tables really available. Usually there's a table available, but um, there was a, a, a girl who was sitting at a table, and she was the scariest person to talk to, being in a chair and everything, for me at the time. Uh, and so I said, well, okay, I'm going to see if I can sit next to her. I'll just sit next to her and I'll do my work. I, you know, I didn't really have much of a plan other than just to, I, I just need a table, pick that one. And so I rolled up to her and I remember saying, hey, do you mind if I sit here with you? And she was like, oh, she's like, yeah, you can have the table. And she was like, get up and just give it to me. I said, no, no, no. Like, like, and we started this conversation. I'm like, no, 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 don't, please. Like, stay here. Like, I don't, don't just get up. And she, and this whole first part of the conversation, like, I, I mean, it's all projective. Like, I don't really know what she's thinking, but she, like, like, honestly, when I, when I, walking around like normal guy, the guy that I am and the way that I am, I don't get that response. If I yeah. come and sit up, it doesn't happen that way. But her response of like trying to like, you're like almost like you're in a chair, you can have it. It's totally cool. I'm going to totally move myself away from you to be polite or whatever. And I told her to stay and she did. And the whole first part of her conversation, I remember was really kind of weird and different. And, uh, and she was like, the way she was talking to me and the way she was dealing with me was very delicate and whatever. And then there was a certain point where our conversation kind of just, we were two people. It was almost like she forgot I was in the chair and it was just, it became normal. I remember thinking like, wow, yeah. like we just transitioned. 
And I think it was because I never made a big deal about the chair. Like the chair was not like whatever, right? Like I, but it, it was such, such an interesting experience emotionally for me to think like, wow, like I want to talk to you and you're so ready to get away from me and like, let me have this table. And it, there's, a, there's emotion, there's stuff that comes up and it's how you feel about that, that matters, not what happened, but Someone else might have an entirely different feeling. Yeah. But my awareness from quote-unquote method was that how did I experience that moment? How, did, how does that amplify my um, being able to understand this? Yeah, how, like being open to seeing how that makes you feel at the deepest level you can, you can feel it. Mm-hmm. You know, because I feel like, yeah, like lots of people can have a different response to that. But I, I think that you know, the, the deeper you would go down with it, most people would probably have a similar kind of an experience. I would think, you know, depending on what you would allow yourself to, I I really don't know, but I mean, do you think people would have a similar experience? I mean, I'm not sure. Well, I mean, nothing would be quite sort of, but I'm just thinking like in terms of if somebody did exactly what you did, like you went to the same place, the same girl, you know, the same sort of thing, like, how would people like if if everybody was really open because you're you're doing it from a place of like let's see what happens i don't know what's going to happen okay let's see what happens right and from that place from that sort of state of mind of saying like i don't know so you, you're saying you free- that the preparation i had which is to be curious is going to create a certain consistency which if you think about that from an acting point of view or a film, if you do the preparation of the character and the character's preparation comes from the same place, you're going to get somewhat similar results in the scene. Yeah. In like, sense, in some ways, right? like the more you sort of allow yourself, because I, I feel like at the core of sort of our human issues, our human conditions are some of the same underlying things. You know, like they say that anger is a very superficial emotion that covers up. So it's like the for, the further you go down the rabbit hole, like it usually boils down to the same couple of things. You know, it's like we want love. We act badly out of places of fear. You know, like some, some general sort of like truths that we have learned about, you know, that aren't too hard to, to actually pull out and decipher. Right. Um, you know, but someone might have a different response to that. But if... Let's say, let's say you were a different kind of an actor. Let's say you were an extremely egotistical, self-like, you know, like self-indulgent kind of a person, right? You go in and this one's like, oh, I'll get up. And, and they decide that it's like, it's like, wow, look at that. She's going to just like do that because I'm in a wheelchair. And they decide to get angry about it instead, right? Well, Mm -hmm. is that really like, that's. Like that, I guess that is an experience. Oh, you got angry about it. But again, that's kind of superficial. Mm. You know, like I feel like the place that you were able to approach it from was of a place of greater vulnerability and really understanding what behind that anger might be. Yeah. You know, that's not to say that somebody who's actually in a wheelchair might not get angry about something like that. Absolutely. I like, I would not doubt that for a second, but what's like the, what's underneath all of that? What's at the core of all of that? It's like tapping into those things. And I feel when, when you tap into those things, that's when you allow something to start 
working through you. Yeah, I agree um, with that. Yeah. I, uh, I actually, for myself, I haven't decided if I'm going to use this word with my students, actually. Um, but I, I decided that, you know, in acting, we have this, we call it preparation, like what you do right before, like right before you step out on stage, sort of to get yourself into an emotional place. And, and I decided that at least for myself, I was going to start referring to it as my offering Hmm. that, that this thing that I'm doing before I walk out to get myself into a place to launch myself sort of into the scene so I can ride this whole thing out so that I can let this thing do me right to get myself. That's kind of what, what it is to me, your preparation. It's like launching yourself into the scene, coming from a place and being a, and getting yourself out of the way, getting all of your bullshit about, Oh, I want this to be great. And Oh, what if it isn't great? Blah, blah, blah. All of that nonsense that actually just is a block between you creating and just getting that out of the way. So I, I refer to it now as my offering. This is my offering to sort of the creativity. And, and I actually do like, I do sort of a gesture, have my own sort of ritual and then I step out, mm. you know, because it's like, all right, this is what I got. This is what I have for you. I would be most grateful if you, <laughs> if you, if you came to me, like for what's about to happen, mm. right? That's Giving up, surrendering to, surrendering to the creative process. You know, I mean, there's uh, a, <clears throat> Tony Robbins talks about this, a lot of great thinkers that talk about this whole idea that you control your own emotions and all that stuff, which I, I think for the most part is pretty true. You, you know, you, you choose your state that you want to be in, you know, if you're, you know, you can, you can be excited, you can be down, you can be angry, you can decide the state in which you exist in. But there's also this whole thing about like the external world and your stimulus, you know, you get stimulated by it. And, and I mean, as a person, I think it's good for you to become aware. Like if something quote unquote makes you angry, it's, you know, really, it's not the thing that made you angry, but the thing inside you. And that's really like, you'll never solve the problem by trying to say like, you know, uh, my mom always does this thing and it really pisses me off. It's not the thing that she does that pisses you off. It's the way you relate to the thing that she does that pisses you off. And so, um, I think as an actor, like the thing is, is that you're in high, high intensity stakes, you don't have time to stop and think and figure out how you feel. So although you can do that in life where you can kind of go, you know what, I don't want to feel this way. I want to do this. I think it works against acting in a certain sense. You kind of, it's almost like you're walking a tightrope and you, you, you're not, you, you don't take your attention off it for a second. You need to be absolutely on it. And the moment you take your attention off, you fall off and it's kind of over, you know, in a, in a way, like, I mean, you can talk about getting back on, but you fell off, right? You got to walk that tightrope from the beginning of the scene to the end of the scene. If it's a play from the beginning of the play to the end of the play, or if you get, if you get an exit from the beginning of your exit to the end of your exit, let's just say at least. Yeah. Um, but you, you know, I think that our, our emotions, like, you know, anger, for example, I realized, I remember Nathaniel would talk a lot about this, but like anger, like you lose power with anger. Yet in our society, a lot of people believe if you're angry, you gain power. 
And so we need to sometimes, I think as artists, alter our relationships to the emotions that we choose. Like, does this emotion really serve me? You know what I mean? Like, um, you know, the most powerful, the most powerful people in movies usually are, you, you, you often find they're not angry. In fact, when I see people getting angry, I'm like, you know, and, it, and I remember, like, I didn't believe that when I was younger. I used to think, oh, no, angry people are powerful because angry people to me would scare me. So yeah. I would kind of shut down and I would kind of let, I, I didn't like to have conflict. And I only fought if I absolutely had to, physically at least. Um, so for me, anger kind of had a certain dominance over my life. But once I realized that anger didn't have to affect me, where someone could be so angry at me and I could just look at them and be like, wow, you're really angry. And I could like, you know, I was totally not affected by it. I realized that I had all the power and they were totally out of control. Their yeah. emotions were in their way. So my point is, is that in channeling all this creativity, you know, we're channeling emotions and we've been talking a lot about feelings. I think also like, you know, sometimes you might need to channel the same scene over and over, but in different ways. Like, you know, um, I remember just writing a scene in a movie once and I was really sad when I wrote it. I was really emotionally and I was like, oh, this scene's probably really good because I'm feeling really sad, whatever. Yeah. Okay, whatever. Okay. And then later when I rewrote the scene, which I literally rewrote entirely, I realized that sadness was an element in it, but it was like kind of indulgent at the time. Like, mm. And I realized there's a whole other layer to it. And so I guess what I'm pointing at is that, you know, you, you work with what you got and if, for example, like, I think your awareness helps you, but we got to kind of like let go of control at the same time. How, how quickly can you react in the moment? Not like, how can you stop the moment, think about the moment and figure the moment out? Like after you've done a scene, you can always look back at the scene and say, well, I could have done that moment better, but now you've had time to think. How did you do the moment in the moment and how quickly were you able to adjust to what was happening? Because if I'm in a scene with another actor and all of a sudden, and it's not written in there and I don't expect it and they just snap at me, they get super angry, right? And that ignites something in me that, you know, my scared little kid, you know, when someone yells at me, I'm in trouble and I'm in danger, so watch out or whatever. So now I react to that briefly, but in the moment I go, you know what? Forget it. I'm going to turn around and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go back at it, right? So how quickly could I adjust to it is really like, that's kind of working you, you know, like I, I'm looking at someone like, you know, these, these Oscar winning actors, right? And what I'm seeing with them in my observation is not necessarily that, I mean, they're, they're clearly talented, they're, they've clearly worked their craft, but their ability to adjust, like you go to a live, you go to live yeah. theater, you know, you watch these really great actors, their ability to, to adjust is so dynamic. It's so, you know, and it's, there's no lag. And it's, and it's an openness and a yeah. willingness to adjust. I mean, that's, a, a, I, like, to me, it's like, I, f I feel like everybody is able to adjust. You know, we, we do it all the time. I mean, in, in acting and in craft, it's because, I mean, the things that usually get in ways because we had some sort of a plan. You know, we had some sort of a plan that we were going going on and it was supposed to go a certain way. And then suddenly something happens that, that flies in the face and now you're just 
standing there like a stuttering <laughs> idiot and you're like I don't know what to do they weren't supposed to say that like that they weren't supposed to just blow up at me like that you know and it's just like and now you're like well so what yeah that's what happened that's what happened go with it go with it because you might just find something extraordinary down that path and I mean I'm sure we can draw all sorts of comparisons and all, all sorts of other creative mediums it's like you know Bob Ross the great <laughs> PBS, you know, like <laughs> painter teaching editor. He said there is no mistakes, only happy accidents. Yeah, there's some really like for his, you know, his hippie style <laughs> and way that he was. There's actually a great little element of truth in that. Mm -hmm. Where it's just like it is just a happy accident. Who even says it's maybe? And I'd go even as far as to say maybe it's not even an accident that that happened. Right. Well, if you treat it as exactly as what was supposed to happen. And instead, you just take it and you go with it. Well, what is an accident other than something occurred other than what you atten yeah, intended to happen? Yeah, something that was unexpected. I mean, you know, have you ever, like, uh, you're about to have a conversation with someone and you played out in your head how the conversation's supposed to go, and then you get into the situation and it doesn't go that way? I mean... Like, right from the very start? <laughs> yeah, usually. <laughs> right? And it's like, who, who are you to think you're going to know how it's going to go? It's like, oh, I think I know this person, so I think I know how it's going to go. I actually remember one time having a conversation with someone and they stopped in the middle of the conversation. This, that's, this isn't how it's supposed to go. And I, and I said, how is it supposed to go? And they were like, well, you're supposed to do this, this, and this. And this is what I'm trying to say. And I said, well, it didn't go that way. And this is what's happening right now. So deal with it. <laughs> and, they were like, and it was like really funny. It was like, like, it was like, like, yeah, you don't just get to decide how it's supposed to go. I'm my own person. You're your own person. We're dealing with this as it happens. Right? Yeah, like, and I mean, <laughs> and what's actually going to come out of it? If you've already planned everything out, if you've already planned how every part of this is supposed to happen and whatever, and you're going to say this, and I'm going to say this, and, uh, and whatever, and then you're going to do this, and whatever. I mean, how, how can you really actually get at any truth in that? in that way. I mean, that's only just, that's coming, that's some contrived thing that you've cooked up in your head. You know what? It's like as if I went, I know what beer Evan's going to get this podcast. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a surprise to me. <laughs> well, that seems like a perfect segue right there, doesn't it? I, which, wanted, I wanted to segue which, in. Yeah. Oh, well, look at that. So yeah. then you did premeditate something. Into well, this. I, yeah. Little. But it was. I was thinking it's time to introduce the beer. This is Thor's Hammer. What a name! By uh, <laughs> by Central City Brewing Company uh, in Surrey, and this guy is um, actually not even classified as a beer. This is, I believe, classified as a barley wine or something like that. It is eleven and a half percent. Yeah. It is rich. Yes. <laughs> it is very rich. It's quite sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, like, not, like, super, super sweet, like a juice or anything, but it's sweet as far as beers go. Yeah. Like, very molasses-y, almost, yeah. I find. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. Yeah, but um, I like it. It's a sipper, though. You don't, you can't really no, this pound one, this one down. This one, like little sips, I'm really enjoying it with little sips. But I, you know, when you, when you had him in my first class, I took a big gulp of it and I could feel the alcohol. I don't know if anyone's ever experienced it this way, but sometimes when I take a big gulp of hard alcohol, I almost experience like go through my nasal. 
Like, it's just like, I'm like, whoa, yeah. holy crap, I just, like, drank some alcohol. Like, <laughs> your body just, like, responds, you know? So, but I do find, I do find with little sips, it's, it's, it's quite an enjoyable mm-hmm. little ride. Like, this, to me, we got a growler of this. I mean, this beer seems like it could last an entire day. Because <laughs> it's just, like, something that I just yeah. drink so slowly. But, you know, if you want to, you know, I would say for anybody who wants to enjoy a beer for a really long time, they want to kind of like draw it out and kind of just, just kind of almost like a scotch. You know what it's like? It's almost like having a scotch. It's just like you just sip it and you just kind of ride out the experience. Although it doesn't taste like scotch, I'm not going to say that, but it's like drinking a scotch for me. Yeah, I would feel like, and and perhaps being classified as a barley wine is not entirely out of the, out of the picture here because it is like, you could almost put this into like a wine glass or a snifter or something just yeah. drink it that way because i just poured us a couple of big glasses of it and it's like oh i feel i've been nursing this guy i know you know for what, a um, long time i also noticed that uh and i actually i think it's a good thing you didn't pour them as tall as you normally pour them you actually poured them about two-thirds i did and I pour was them like, a little short that's a good idea because the coolness i like my beer cold um the coolness of the beer has been able to maintain because thing is, if it was longer and I still had half a glass or whatever, I would probably be like, ah, it's kind of warming up now. So yeah. one thing I'd say about this beer is like, pour yourself like half a glass of it, drink it slow, and then fill it up again if you're getting a growler. Um, yeah. Unless you just like hard, hard drinking beer. <laughs> yeah. Unless you're like just pounding down bottles of yeah. Jack Daniels on the weekends, which might be the sign of a problem. <laughs> but... But it also, if you want to get your if you want to get your buzz on, drink a pint of this quick, and you're probably going to be doing all right. Yeah, or you'll be maybe you'll be throwing up in a bathroom stall. <laughs> <laughs> That's another possibility it as well. How can you handle your alcohol? How could you handle your alcohol? Um, well, um, which thought? I don't know. I don't know. This has been a it's great, pretty good one. Yeah, been a good one. I I I enjoyed exploring this idea today of of just channeling creativity and and you know just for me to acknowledge that that kind of exists whether or not you listening (laughs) wherever you are agree with it or not um i think it's just one way to look at creativity that's maybe what i like about it this is what i like about it i like the idea of channeling creativity as taking a little bit of pressure off you to be so great and so special and realizing that maybe creativity is not about being special or great, but about something that, you know, you kind of, you kind of look for, you kind of set yourself up for, and um, it, it's kind of like it's out there, and we all have access to it, and we filter it through our own little world, and it's not about being great or good or whatever. Yeah. And I think by taking that pressure off, it can help people to realize like that you can do something really great without needing to necessarily like have done all this time and hard effort, you know, like, uh, oh man, I remember my dad and I had this talk about hockey cause I used to want to play hockey when I was a teenager and I was super serious about it. And I want to go good to this Canadian boy, good didn't. Canadian boy. Right. And I wanted to go to this school in Calgary and it was a hockey high school. All you did was study and you played hockey. Zip. Um, anyone who plays hockey probably knows about it, but anyway, I remember my dad saying to me, well, he said, well, because I started hockey, ice hockey, I started late. Like most kids started when they were three or four. I started like when I was like, I don't know, 12. I started super late. So late. Well, compa- <laughs> no, honestly, yeah, no, no, I, I lost I lots it. of years comparatively. And he said, well, 
you know, how are you able to compete or compare to people who put in all this hard work? And I remember him saying it to me, and I, and I said, well, and I said, you know, I don't take it for granted. Like, no one told me to do this. I'm doing this because I want to do this. And, like, when they're not practicing, I'm practicing. Like, and I was. Like, I get home from school, I would sit in the, I, I wouldn't sit, I'd stand in our garage, and I would stick handle various types of moves for literally hour, hours, whatever. I would just do it. And I was playing with guys that are in AAA and stuff. And granted, I didn't have the coaching that they had. I didn't have the positioning elements so much. That was something I was kind of catching up on. So I was behind. But I had speed. I had stick handling skill. I could shoot. I could deke. I could do all the stuff that, you know, everyone else could do. And I kind of was catching up on certain things. Also hitting was kind of, I was lagging on that because you don't practice hitting in street hockey yeah. and other things that <laughs> maybe before that. I, granted, I have to say too that I didn't just start ice hockey. I didn't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to play ice hockey. I had played street hockey and other variations of yeah. hockey before that. So it wasn't like, oh, you just picked up hockey at 12 and then started. No, I had played before. I just hadn't been on the ice yeah. so much. So anyway, um, but one of the things that I realized was that Hockey is more in the head than in the body. Because, you know, when you start late, you realize that you're behind. It's just, you just realize that you're, you're, you have to catch up. And what I learned through the experience of playing with these guys in AAA, and I had a really good friend who was like one of the top players there. He coached me a lot. His dad coached me a lot. And uh, what I realized from them was that it's in your head. Hockey's in your head. All sports are really in your head. Can you think? And, you know, I think about, like, Wayne Gretzky or someone like that. You know, if you look at the hockey players, look at their physicality, right? Look at all these other, you know, look at, say, the fastest player, the strongest player, the best shooter, the best whatever. And you look at, like, Wayne Gretzky, for example, and it's, it's not that he had necessarily the best of all that, but he had the mind for hockey. And what I, what I tapped into very early on was that I needed the mind. I needed to understand hockey and I needed to think. And so <clears throat> I don't play hockey anymore, but I realize with art, it's the same way. And probably with just about anything. Just about anything. It's yeah. about how you think. It's not so much about like someone could have acted their whole life, but then someone like Harrison Ford could start at age 32 or well, yeah. basically make his break at 32. I think he probably did a little bit, but could start so late and have it happen so late for them because it's in the mind and it's and in the mind you know, it doesn't like hard work. And I, and I want to drill this home just on for anybody. It's like hard work is only a partial answer. In fact, smart work is probably like 90% more important. I mean, when you take sports, it's, it's very interesting because you have to be physically fit to play at top levels. Yeah. If you're not physically fit, you're, you're, you're kind of not really in the game. So, okay. But physically fit is not hard to do. I mean, you know, eat well, work out every single day, take your rest days, get coaching, whatever. It's simple. Thinking smart and understanding the game, you have to think. Like, you have to work that out. Like, how do I – I used to break down. I used to sit there – and I know I'm getting on a talk here. But I used to sit there in my living room when my body was too physically sore from physical practice. And I would sit there and I would break down – how I would I would watch hockey players like Pavel Bury and, and great players and I would watch them and I'd go, how did they like deke that player out? What happened? I would break down the play and I would I would draw out their stick handling move. 
And I would try to see what they did with their body. And I started to figure out, uh, I had this guy, uh, Ryan Horvath, who was a really close friend of mine, playing soccer. But in soccer, he told me one day, he said, deking someone out in soccer is a lateral movement. Just remember that. Because, you know, you're a fast runner, but it's a lateral movement. And I realized that if I move sideways, it throws off their whole game. So I realized that in hockey, what's my agility? What's my ability to move sideways? And so then I became really great at deking people out because I understood that by the moment I pushed right, they put their weight on that foot. This is all in the mind. This isn't the body. Yeah. But once they're on their right foot or their left foot, I realize that they have a certain balance. And now, once they're there, I know that. They don't know that. I'm thinking about, like, it's not like I'm in the moment thinking about it because I would practice these thoughts. But, like, that's practicing smart. I'm not practicing hard. I'm practicing smart. I'm literally working out the physicality of how they're responding to me. And I know what they're going to do before they do it. And, you know, what? you would come up to a defender. I had this one move I... I uh, I called it like a like a like a, a pull. Like I used to pull the puck into oh, like, my into my skates. Like and I, a little bit of a drag, or yeah, a, like a drag. Yeah. Like you pull it into your skates and then you put it out. And I realized almost every single defender would fall for it. They would stick their stick out, and I knew that once they stuck their stick out to try and poke check it, right? Because once I pulled it away from them, they usually wanted to put their stick out. I could watch and figure out based on their physicality and based on where their stick was, what I needed to do next. And I had right. thought that out before they had thought it out. So they're reacting, but I'm anticipating. So when I think of art, so to take this back, when I think of art, a great artist is someone who thinks they don't just work hard, but they think it out. They, they, they think it out and then they apply it. And the thing is, is when you're in the moment, like when you're stick handling, for example, and you're in a one-on-one deep, you're not thinking. You're not, like, the way I described it, it sounds like I'm thinking all of this in my head. It becomes so practiced that you know what to do because you've thought it out. But in the moment, you're not thinking. You're just literally doing. But because you've thought it out, you have the mindset. You know what I mean? So I think sometimes people think that smart work is thinking in the moment, but it's not. And hard work can only get you so far because if you're unaware, you don't know. So you need to kind of, like... You know, and I think it's good. I think it's good when people sit down. Like if you look at an acting performance and you sit down and you break down, why is that acting performance really special? Like what, what was it about it? But when you're in the moment, if you're doing that, it's not going to work. Mm. But do it. Do it because you want to help understand the craft, but don't use it when you're in it. Like, you know, trust that the work's already there. And I think that's preparation. Yeah, I mean, when... Like to, to build on some of your analogy, if you look at, you could probably take almost any any sport, whatever one is your of choice, but we'll, we'll stick with hockey. You know, it's like they they always have, you know, you can YouTube top 10, top 10 goals or something like that, you Great. know, of, of the year. And you watch, you know, these incredible players like do these things. You know, you'll watch them like deke out two guys and then come in and just like tuck the most perfect, you know, shot past the goalie. And you watch it and you go, there's no way they could have planned that. There's not a, there's not a chance they could have figured that out. They had no idea exactly what the defender was going to do. They trained themselves to a razor's edge to be able to respond and to potentially predict what might happen. But 
to be able to respond and to adjust mm-hmm. as we've just talked about. And you watch them and you're like, wow, I like, there's no way the, the mind and someone's can work that fast to like do some of these things sometimes. Like when you watch a lot of these plays, like it looks like they, like it, it all looks way too perfect. Like the, like they did this at just the right time and this at just the right time. And then like you go, how could somebody, there's no way somebody could have actually planned all of that. Mm-hmm. There's just no way. So there's something else that's, that's kind of working that that's almost at work because there is in sports, there's a tremendous amount of creativity. And yeah. I also wanted to, to say this as well. Like we talk about like the body. It's like, again, kind of like Daniel day Lewis was saying with his things like, you know, you're playing a prisoner. So you got to lock yourself up in prison. You're going to be an athlete. So you got to have, yeah, that's kind of the most obvious thing. You've got to have, you got to be physically able. Yeah. You know, but the thing is, is that it's kind of a trip. That, that's almost one of the most mundane details of it all. Um, in that, I mean, and the truth is, is that the body is just a tool. Our bodies are just a tool to act and like physically and interact with the world. That's pretty much its, its main function, Mm -hmm. but it follows the mind. The mind doesn't really follow the body. You know, like there's can be like physical health can do things to improve your mental well-being, but for the most part, we tell our bodies what to do. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, it's interesting because there's certain routes that I drive, right? And when I go on autopilot, like when I'm not thinking, I got when I'm off the moment and I, I'm thinking about these other things that I need to do in the day, I'll go on autopilot when I'm driving. And I remember one time I had to go to a movie and the movie theater is one way. And then my, my regular route's another way. And I remember driving past the movie theater and I was, and I, or, or another way, and I realized, oh man, I gotta get to the movie. And I realized I was off track. And the thing is, is my physical body drove the car perfectly. But I ended up in the wrong spot. Because <laughs> my mind was not in the moment, like it was somewhere yeah. else. You know, and so, the, if, you know. The the job still got done, but it didn't get done properly, right? And I think, like, that's kind of the precision. It's like, how focused can I stay on the moment? Like, and when, like, when you're just casually driving from one place to the next, it's not a big deal. But, uh, well, let me just share another story, because why not? So, <laughs> this one time I was taking this girl out, and she had an ex-boyfriend who... I guess they had recently split up. I like this story already. Yeah, I know. It's a good one, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, so she, her and I actually worked together. This is quite a while back. I was a teenager. And uh, she, um, she and I worked together. And her boyfriend, she told me a little bit about it. And she said, I'm in this bad relationship, whatever. So it ended. A few weeks later, I asked her out. I said, you know, would you like to go? And she said, yeah. And so she said, come pick me up. So I drove over and I picked her up, picked her up. She got in my car. We're driving around. And we were driving and we're kind of in the burbs, right? Suburbs. And so we're driving and um, we're coming up this hill or whatever. And I remember her saying like, do you notice that there's this beamer behind us? Like following us? And I was like, yeah. And I actually had. I noticed that there was this car and I've been like, because I always check my rearview mirror. Like, if anyone knows anything yeah. about me, I'm very like 360 with my car. I'm always checking my mirrors. I'm very like aware. And so I was like, I thought it was odd, but when she mentioned, it, I'm like, 
okay, this is definitely odd. Yes, I'm like, yes, I've been noticing. I was actually going to say, like, this Beamer's been following us for a long time. She goes, I think that's my ex-boyfriend. And I was like, really? I'm like, oh, my God. So this guy's been following us since I picked her up from her house, I guess. <laughs> anyway, I, um, so I'm like, so we're driving for a little bit longer. It's still following us. And there's this roundabout, right? It's like, so I get to this roundabout, and I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. And I'm like, go around the roundabout. but Because like, it looked like it was going to go right. Because really, the only way that cars go around this place is right. But I did the roundabout, and I went the other way. And I drive past him, and we looked in his window, and it was him. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, like, hit the pedal. I hit the gas, and I just floored it. And they went around the roundabout, him and his friend. It wasn't just him. It was him and his friend. Uh. And they drove around the roundabout, and they started, like, chasing us. And we got in this little car chase. And so, but I knew the area super well, right? I grew up there. So I'm speeding down this hill and then I take a left and I cut up this hill. And the, the nice thing that I had in my benefit was that these roads bend. They're not just straight. Yeah. So he couldn't see me when I was going around a bend and I cut right down this corner and it kind of does an S turn. It bends right and then it goes left and I cut down this turn and I just immediately stopped the car and I turned off the lights. And we saw his car go whipping past the intersection and drove right past. He didn't even know I turned. And then we just waited there for 15 minutes, like, just in silence in this dark car. And, like... It's the stuff of, like, some sort of a coming-of-age comedy. I know, right? <laughs> I gotta write this somewhere. And anyway, we sat there for 15 minutes, and when we realized, like, we had never come back, like, he must have thought that I sped up that hill and, like, yeah. went off and down these... And he's trying, probably trying to find me still. We lost him! <laughs> so, anyway, my point of this whole story was, as interesting as that all is... Um, was that in the moment when we realized the car is following us to the point where 15 minutes basically until we knew that we had pretty much lost them, I was razor sharp in the moment. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> there was no like, I wonder what I'm going to do tomorrow or worrying about a bill or anything. I was like, in the moment, absolutely 100%. Like, oh, yeah. like and if he comes back, what am I going to do? You know, like I'm just so, even when I was talking to her, um, I guess the only time I really wasn't in the moment, maybe, well, no, I probably wasn't in the moment. I was talking to her while we were sitting there in the car and I was still thinking about if he comes back, what are we going to do? And I think that's probably even what we were discussing. But what's interesting is like, those are those moments. Like, you know, I'll probably never forget that moment in my entire life unless I get Alzheimer's, knock on wood. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but anyway, my point is, is that, yeah, like when you're a razor sharp, like that's, there's no autopilot. You're like on it. You're figuring like... I was already like trying to figure out how I was going to get away from him. You know what I mean? And to think to take that right turn, to take that risk and turn off my lights, like I, you know, you have to be kind of like in the moment to do that. It's not like, you know, I probably saw it in a movie, but I, I, who knows? I don't know. Yeah. But I mean, it all kind of coalesces, you know, it all kind of comes together to, help you to respond in this sort of way. And it's not like, yeah, it's not a premeditated thing. No, I didn't know that was how I was going to escape him. Oh yeah. You know, like I didn't write that scene. I didn't know to write that scene. Like I couldn't tell you the story until it happened. Yeah. I think, um, movies don't write movies. Life <laughs> writes movies. If well, it's so, good. So let's talk about that though. Just briefly. It's like, that's channeling creativity. Yeah. Because it is because you're dealing with the moment as it is. You know, there is no, like, I don't get to decide how the streets turn. I don't get to decide where I am when we realized he's following us. The only thing I decided what I was going to do once I got the given information I had 
which is I could have kept driving. I mean, you know, some people could say, well, the, you know, what you could have done is maybe, you know, had I, had I gotten caught, like had he stopped us and we had some confrontation, I might have maybe thought, oh, I could have done this or I could have done that. Who knows, right? I ended up in this case getting away. But, but in this case, like, which, by the way, side note, that relationship did not last long because chicks with crazy ex-boyfriends are usually... Do you follow you around, like, <laughs> with their buddy in a yeah. beamer? I told her she needed to deal with that before we have dating, but anyway, my point was, <laughs> my point was that, um, yeah, you're in the moment and you're dealing with it as it comes, and when I actually... And when I remember that moment, I don't remember like anticipating that there was a point where I could turn and turn off my lights. It just kind of presented itself as an opportunity at the moment. And I was like, I could do this right now. And it was just a decision in the moment. That's what I'm doing. You know, I wasn't asking for permission. I wasn't like, this would be cool. I was just like, this might work. <laughs> and it did. It yeah. just happened to work. I mean, had he been 10 feet further up the road, he might have seen me turn the corner and I would have, and I think that road was a dead end, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I would have been caught, you know, we would have had some confrontation probably. I don't know what would have happened. I have no yeah. idea. But the thing is, is in that moment, I'd made a decision and it worked. And sometimes you make decisions and they don't work, but you'll deal with it when it happens. Yeah. I think this is what we're trying to get at though, right? Is this, you, you know, you're creative. It was a creative move. Yeah. And you deal with whatever the results are of your creative move. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, um. Yeah, like it's it's you'll you'll find out how to do it in the doing of it. You know, like it was that was that was uh, a revelation for me in in uh, acting class when I was early early into the depths early into the depths. Does that make sense uh, like of it. of Meisner work and <laughs> and you know we were at this stage where it was like oh man like I've got this you know very important thing that I have to do. You know, like when I come in, you know, I've got this thing and like, and, and I had this, you know, because in your situation, it's just like you're living truthfully, but in a real circumstance, you know, Meister famously said acting is living truthfully under imaginary circumstances. And so you create these imaginary circumstances and you try and live them out as truthfully as you, as you can. Right. And so you're doing this thing and then suddenly it's like, you've got this other person now that you've got to deal with as well in addition to trying to do this other thing. And I remember being so like before it was going to start because I knew what it was that I was going to be doing. I didn't know what was going to happen when this other person walked in the door. I didn't know what kind of circumstances that they'd sort of come up with for themselves when they came in. They could come in just infuriated with me for some reason. I didn't know. Right. I didn't know what was kind of going to come at me, but I did know this one thing that I had to do. And I was like, and I knew at some point in the back of my mind that someone was going to be coming in through that door. And I was like, I remember I was, I was just like freaking out before this. I'm like, Oh God, this is going up like in the afternoon. And like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. And I was freaking out about like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? And then I suddenly realized, wait, I don't have to know how I'm going to do it. And it was like, yeah, it was, it was like this, like, it was like, it felt like this whole day I had been like, been like trudging through like, like prickly branches and bushes and stuff being like, Oh God, how am I going to do this? And throwing (laughs) these things off of me. I can't get out of here. And then suddenly it was like, you don't have to know how to do it. 
And then all of a sudden it was like stepping out into this clear field, like, and everything was peaceful and calm. It's like, oh, I don't have to know. I don't have to know how I'm going to do this and how I'm also going to deal with that Hmm. because I'm going to find out how I do it when it happens. (laughs) And it was, it was extraordinary. It was absolutely extraordinary. And, and the, the sort of the scene as it worked out was very, you know, it was full of all sorts of wonderful, wonderful things, really beautiful moments that I shared with, with someone else. It was, it went into emotional places that I didn't know it was going to go to. And, and it was, it was very, uh, truthful and very heartfelt. And I didn't know that any of that was going to happen, Mm. but like, that's like, that's kind of the extraordinary thing that can happen when you're not trying to control what's going to happen when you're not trying to think everything out and how everything's going to go. Because again, as we've said so many times on this show, you don't know. You absolutely don't know. And so in some ways, your best defense is to be open to whatever happens, Mm -hmm. you know, to embrace everything and to deny nothing, Mm -hmm. you know, let it happen and then, and then go with it. You know, the martial arts masters, they always talk about using your opponent's weight against them Mm -hmm. instead of trying to just resist their force, use their force, you know, like it's, it's, there's these lessons, it's, and it's so fascinating how, how many times these lessons, these great truths in, of, of our lives come, come to, to exist and, and are taught to us in so many different places. Like we taught, I mean, they call it the arts is in the martial arts for a reason too. I mean, it's for that, for that reason as well. It's like, there are actually these really kind of profound principles that are underlying everything. It's not just about beating the shit out of somebody. (laughs) No, you know, there's, there's a whole philosophy that's going on underneath it. That's great. You know, the, the, I was actually thinking as you raised the um, the point of you're not able to predict what they're going to do, and you you know the martial arts thing about using their weight against them. That was really what it was like in hockey. When I was using an example, I, I, I thought about that. I was like, yeah, like I wouldn't want people to think that what I'm saying is that I'm communicating somehow that I could predict what they were going to do, but I could I could use what they did based on the fact that. You know, there's two options. There's really only two options. Like, I mean, you know, you can say there's an infinite amount of options. But when you do a certain move, you know, people either really do one of two things. They either fall for it or they don't fall for it. And if anyone knows anything about sports, I would, I would say in a, in, a, in, a, in a stick handling deke or a footwork deke in soccer, I experienced this, or probably in basketball and other sports too, but I'm not too familiar with those. And athletes will know this who are really good at getting around players is that there's actually in a move, there's probably about seven points or X amount, infinite number of points where you, you can like, when you're really confident with the puck or the ball or whatever your tool is, you can, you can, you're assessing them more than you're worried about what you're doing with the puck or what you're doing with the ball. And so based on their response, you have an additional move to deal with that response. So like, Poker. Um, I was gonna say even something like poker. You watch sure. it the same way. They always say it's like you don't play the you don't play the cards. You play the man. Exactly. Yeah. Because you you can see how they respond. So like for example, if you're juking right, for example, um, you expect in the juke right that like moving your body right that they're gonna move 
left in coordinates with you. They're facing you, so they're going to move with you. So if they move with you, then you know they've put their weight there, so you can use that against them. But if you move right and they don't, you can continue to move right. Until they do, you can force their hand. You can force them to do it. And once they do it, then you can move left. And the other thing, too, is like defenders will start to get crafty. They'll start to, you can watch them. And, and there's a hesitancy and, and really great, like, I know this because, you know, playing forward, you had to pay attention to this stuff. But you could watch them. And if they kind of looked like they were going right or whatever, but then they went the other way, you could kind of see hesitancy in them. You knew they weren't fully committed. You could use their lack of commitment against them. Right. So it, it's not like you're, I don't know that what they're going to do. I don't know how committed they are going to be to agreeing with my move or disagreeing with it, but you can respond kind of to it. And so really, it's really a gauge of one or two things. Are they going with me or are they not going with me? And based on what they do, that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. You know, um, I, I used to experience, especially like, with the goalie, when you would get one-on-one with a goalie, both in soccer and in hockey, because that happened for me quite a bit, was I used to experience it as slow motion. And the reason why I think I experienced it as slow motion was that I was so, so interested in what they were doing that my entire decision was based on what they were doing. So um, even though things are happening in probably microseconds, it felt like slow motion to me because every like there's a weird way when you see it enough when you when you're paying so much close attention to something the world really slows down it's like it's it's like you're they call it being in the zone i really experience it like that it's it's not like um you, you know if someone was to say like how did you do that move afterwards i probably wouldn't know how to describe it but i could describe the experience of being in it and usually when I was in it, it was like, it was just really slow to me. It was really slow. And, and I, I, I kind of knew what to do because they did something. The times where I usually got stopped was usually because I was trying to do something and not responding to how they were doing it. Yeah. Um, you know, I had an idea of how I would do it. Like there's these token moves that you learn. And then you go, I'm just going to do this move. I'm just going to deke them out with this move. And sometimes they work because they're so proficient that they work. But there's a, I think they're reading you too, right? So they're reading you and they're reading how committed you are to your move. Yeah, absolutely. And so if you're not fully committed to it, they're kind of, they can see it, you know, like, um, I think there's like real great defenders or really great, sorry, offense men uh, or offensive women, whatever. They, I think you're so committed to your move. If you go right and they don't go right, you're still committed to going right. Whereas like a move is like, I'm going to go right and then I'm going to go left. I'm already planning to go left. Yeah. But like. But then you, they haven't moved. So now you're just going straight into it. Yeah, exactly. 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 <laughs> but when you're really committed to the move, you're like, I'll go right. And if they don't go right, I'll keep going right. You know what I mean? And so you have this kind of adjustability to it, which makes you really kind of elusive. You know? Yeah. Whereas when you already have a pre-planned move that you know works, it will work 50-50 because, or, and then if you do it once and they know you do that move, it'll work less and less, right? Your odds decrease. But if you have a move that you haven't really invented almost, or it's like, like when you've done enough different variations of the same move, you start to have different options. You know, you have different options of the way to get around the same person. I don't know. I find it that way. It's like, 
But it's not it's about like, me. It wasn't about yeah, me. how we, good of a stick handler am I? It, I mean, it even, didn't have even, to do with that. Even then, there's so many different circumstances that it can be. It's like, what? where were you in like relation to the ice? You know, like, were you center ice? Were you coming oh. out of your own zone? Were you going into their zone? Did they have a guy behind them back? Like, there's so many things that go into fact, like factoring that out that, again, you can't possibly plan that out. You can hone yourself. You can hone some of your technical skills and your abilities to find as you can. But then at the end of it all, it's just like you've got to trust that it's all going to come together. And then now in this moment, those things are going to are going to just come to serve you as you need to call upon them. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, and you also, I'll share a little bit more about sports too. If you were a forward and you say you you – tended to sprint a lot or you tended to try to beat guys. If you did that early in the game, um, it would be really good to stop doing that at some point and do the opposite. Because I remember like people would start to anticipate me trying to run past them. I was fast. So they would, they would actually start running like as though I was going to run past them. And all I had to do was just stop the ball and pass it off to someone else. And it was like, they just left me wide open and they left a wide hole for me to make an easy pass. And so People who you're working with are trying to predict your moves yeah. too. So you can actually use their own predictions against them. Like if, if they think they know what I'm going to do, it gives me more of an advantage. Because the moment they think they know what I'm going to do, pretty much every other option is better. Yeah. You know, it's like as long as I don't do the one thing that they're predicting, which their odds of guessing the one thing I'm going to do is very low. So... You know, I look at like someone like Ronaldo, who's like one of the best soccer players in the world, and I look at him like burn guys all the time. And I, it's like you just never know what he's going to do. You know, if you ever think you know what he's going to do, you're going. It's over. You yeah. know, like you're watching him do his do his thing, and you still don't know what he's going to do. So like that defender doesn't know what he's going to do. Like it's not like you know it. And you can see the whole field on the telly, right? But he's in the moment. He's there, like face to face with this person, and it's so interesting. Like. Well, and, and, yeah, I'll draw even more comparisons. I'll bring this back sort of, uh, you know, in acting. The, the best actor for me is, like, I don't know what they're going to do. Yeah, you don't know. I don't know, know what's going to happen. Even, like, when I've been in class, I'm, like, not even somebody who's a household name or somebody that you would know of, you know, just great actors who I've seen in classes or in plays and, and whatever. It's like, even if you've seen this play or if you've seen this scene, you know, however many times, and every single time you watch them put it up, you like, you know how it all goes, but you're still like, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what they're going to do next. And you know, there's again, like you can draw a parallel even with, with sports and soccer with like Ronaldo. It's like, well, he's trying to beat the defender. Why? So he can go in. So you can try and like get a shot in on net, score a goal. Right. We know (laughs) how like this is, it's either going to go basically one of two ways. They're going to get past. He's going to get a, a chance at it and he's going to score or he's not going to or like he'll be stopped and he won't get his chance yeah. but there's like we we kind of know subconsciously what the options are but we're thrilled absolutely thrilled by seeing the journey of what can happen in between there totally you know uh, one more story about soccer uh, Lionel Messi recently did a penalty shot and if anybody's listening maybe we can post this link on our blog but um is that he did a penalty shot where he ran up to the ball and he faked that he was going to kick it and then he just passed it like three feet to the right. And the goalie dove as though he was going to shoot it. 
And then Suarez or whatever came in and put the ball in real easy. And it was like, what's so amazing about it is that usually a penalty shot is just taken. Yeah. But they did it in a way where everyone thought, even the defensemen who were at the line, who were defending and trying to help their goalie, they didn't know it was going to happen. The only, I guess maybe Suarez and maybe Messi knew what they were going to do. They had a plan. But the, the thing is, is everybody was predicting things would go a certain way, and they didn't. And that's what's so amazing, is like they played against everybody's prediction. And so like I think when you're not in the moment, you know, when you're not responding to the moment, like, like when you think you know, you're always behind. You know, you're not ready. Like, um, of course, there's an infinite number of options that could have could occur, but it's almost like better to be, it's better to be open to those options. And I actually don't think you're ever in an infinite number of options. Like, for example, you know, when you're defending someone in, who's in sports, for example, you know they're not going to, like, start flying. You know they're not going to start, like, they're not, they're not going to jump over you. You know, like, there's there's a certain amount of predictability where there's like certain physical things that are not possible in certain sports, like for the most part. So you have a realm, but you need to be open to your realm of whatever it is, right? Like if you're in an acting scene, you know that there's probably a, like in, in improv, they say that you need to kind of close the, the options to some degree. You need to start selecting things at some point, you know, to narrow it down because if creativity is totally open, it doesn't, it almost doesn't work. Yeah, you know? it needs it needs to be focused. It needs to be it focused. Needs to have some kind of a focus, otherwise, yeah, the mess and the math. So I think my final point that I would leave this with is that channel creativity, but create the focus for it. Because I think what I was talking about before is how you set up the circumstance to be creative, is you set up the chance to be focused for for where you want to direct it, but you have to be open within that focus. You need to create some boundaries. You know, don't just leave it 360 degrees open it yeah. anywhere necessarily. Try and create a direction that you're trying to go, right? Yeah, and I was I, I kind of took that uh, <laughs> out of my head there. Like, right, yeah, because right before we started the podcast, we were talking a little bit about picking a direction. I think that is important, and I think that that will actually draw the kind of creativity that you want. You know, you can just absolutely, like, there's, you can just channel all kinds of creativity and it will be, you know, it will be remarkable and interesting, but it could also be completely all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, when you, when you focus direction, when you pick something that you want to steer towards something that is of interest to you, you don't necessarily have to know why that's of interest to you, but to say, it's like, okay, this is where I'm going and this is how I'm going to express that. And now that creativity, I mean, I think that creative channeling and, and energy is something that has has a bit of an intelligence to it, you know? And it's like, oh, okay, here's somebody that's ready for me. Then this is where it's going to go. And maybe you decide, no, I don't want that. Or maybe you decide that you do, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I embrace embrace the creative the creative process, embrace, uh, those things that, that come to you and don't, uh, don't judge them. Mm -hmm. Don't critique them. Like you can say whether you want it or not, but be open to them. They're not, they're not silly things. Uh, in fact, those things that just come out of you seemingly out of nowhere are, are some of the, some of those gifts. 
yeah. that you absolutely want. And I mean, we, and we know this. I think that we all know this. I mean, and I'll, I'll draw again one more thing with acting, you know, with all the, especially early on, it's like, you know, with all the planning that you did and, and everything with how you wanted the scene to sort of go. And sometimes you just be like, oh, I feel so flat. You're in the middle of the scene and you're like, oh God, I feel so flat. And it's like, I'm doing the things that I was working on and I just feel so whatever. And then something unexpected would happen. Something you didn't know was going to happen, happened. And suddenly you're just like propelled into a new reality of the scene that you, that you hadn't, you hadn't thought of. And it just completely takes it to another level. Mm. So in, I feel on a deep level, we actually know that it's those things that are the greatest gifts that we receive in our creative work. But we were so untrusting of them. We just don't trust them because we don't know where it comes from. I think that's why it is, you know, it's like, we're like, oh, but I didn't sit down and write this out and plan all of this. So I don't trust it because it came out of nowhere. And how can I trust that? I haven't had time to analyze it. Blah, 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 blah. Trust it. <laughs> Freaking trust it. Yeah. Because we know that those are actually like where, where the great, where the great gems come from. Mm. Try and find as many of those as you can. Yeah. Totally. I mean, you know, I think about, I think about our podcast too. It's like, we're, we're, we get a little more focused on these Wednesday talks where we kind of try to figure out a topic we're going to talk about. And then Sundays, we're, we're not as, we're a little more open. Not so serious. They're not so serious. But the <laughs> thing is, is we still know we're still going to talk about artistic integrity. So we still have a focus and we have a goal, regardless of yeah. if we haven't figured out the topic. I think if we said, what are we going to talk about today? And we had no goal like today we'll talk about business or today we'll, we might talk about that but we talk about it under the filter of a direction that we're trying to go yeah and then i think on these talks like you know the serious wednesdays i don't know what I'm <laughs> <laughs> why so serious wednesdays <laughs> um we we get a little bit more honed in and we try yeah. to tackle a, a specific topic and um you know i think it's interesting to see i mean they're both they're both a little different um, but yeah, I mean, I think that we got to be open and we got to be in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Good beer. Good well, talk. Yeah. That was a, that was a hefty one. Hefty one. Beer and talk. What was the name of this one again? The hammer. Oh, Thor's Thor's hammer. Go get some Thor's hammer and have a good talk with your buddy. That was our show for today. Thanks a lot for listening and being a part of this. If you enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe and share with your friends and family, or you can learn more and message us at www.thebndpodcast.com. Oh, and make sure to leave a comment and rate us on iTunes. That will really help us out a lot. It definitely will. Thanks. Thanks.